Does it take a lot of time for you to establish your offensive system and your defensive system and constantly working on it? Sure does. Well, the culture thinks the same thing. Well, when you discuss these things every few weeks, like, no, we talk about it every game and it takes time. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome assistant coach for UNC Charlotte and head coach of New Zealand's under-19 national team, Aaron Fern. Coach Fern is here today to discuss building player-led cultures, establishing roles, the teaching points of the tagging up offensive rebounding system, and we talk sideline out-of-bounds specials and post-operating spots during an always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter, where we recently announced the details of Slapping Glass Plus, launching May 16th. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Aaron Fern. Coach, we want to start with a conversation that I know is near and dear to you, but then you know a lot of coaches all around the world, and that's about building cultures. I know that Australia does a great job and has some concepts that you guys use to build cultures around teams and programs. And so wanted to start there with your views on building a culture and maybe some of the ways that you guys have done it in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I think we as coaches spend a lot of time on offense and a lot of time on defense. I'm not sure we spend enough time on building culture. I think if the culture is not heavily emphasized in your program, then I think it's irrelevant what you do defensively and offensively, in my opinion. I think you don't get true buy-in when it's just behaviors that you want your guys to demonstrate throughout your program. And yeah, in Australia, we spend, in all our codes, you know, rugby league, Australian rules, football, rugby union, cricket, netball, basketball, men's and women's basketball, we spend a lot of time and invest a lot of money and resources into building culture. Because like I said, I think a lot of those systematic things you do are not as effective if you don't have real role definition and clarity on how you want your team to behave. And ultimately, how do you want your team to be seen by the opposition, by the public, by the media? Because it's pretty obvious the way that you behave. So yeah, we spend a lot of time in it. What are some specific ways that you guys try to actively build that culture? Yeah, there's a few layers, but I'll just talk about what I've done in my programs back in Australia. So we generally meet over a two or three day period before the season. And it's a fairly exhausting experience mentally for the guys. There's a lot of debate and discussion on how our behavior will be established. But I guess overall, we're trying to establish a team theme like most teams do, that being you know, family, just us, all in, whatever those your theme word is going to be. Then we come up with like trademark behaviors that we want to abide by, I guess is how you want to put it. So, you know, I'll just pick two words. It's say united and strong, you know, like, uh-huh. so we come up with those two type of trademark words and that's okay to have words, but what do they mean? So, that's when the discussion comes in. So a lot of it is like, okay, well, what's the behaviors that we're going to demonstrate both on and off the court that are going to be very visible when it comes to being united? So we'll split up into groups. We'll come back to the whiteboard. We'll write all these behaviors up. We'll debate them. We'll cross some out. We'll, we'll keep some. We'll, you know, one group likes this, the other group likes that, but we ultimately come to a list of three or four behaviors that we want to demonstrate that show that we're united. And those are the behaviors that we ultimately hold each other accountable to. And they're team driven. A lot of sports teams in Australia are almost policed within 
you have your coach that has the final say, but your leadership group, you know, we're established a leadership group and it's up to them to get the guys to hold these behaviours to a really high level. And if they step out of line, well, then the group deals with it. There's obviously consequences, whatever they are, whatever they, they come up, they need to be. And there's real good buy-in because it's team-driven. It's not dictated by me like, hey, you guys are doing this. It's actually driven by the group. And yeah, we've had a really lot of success with that. What's kind of the makeup that you look for out of the leadership group so that people will all listen to their message and not like if it's a bunch of starters and it's, you know, your eighth, ninth man, well, you know, forget them. You guys are always playing. What do you think is a healthy makeup for this leadership group? Yeah, that's a great question. And we did not want to go that way either uh, of just all starter guys. So it was like normally a veteran of the club, you know, someone that had been in the club for a period of time or been a pro for a long time. Typically, there's three players that make up a leadership group on a basketball team. Generally, the way that I would do it was a veteran guy. And we do. We had an older guy that had been with our club for a long time, been pro for over 10 years. He was one of them. You know, the group selects the captain. We don't as a team, as coaches, the team does. And he was a second-year guy out of college, out of the Australian guy that came out of college. And after a couple of years, had established himself as a really good player, but very mature. And the group selected him as a captain, and he was only a second-year guy. And then I always wanted one guy on the bench. And look, your pro team makeups are, you know, you have guys on your bench that are older guys that have been around a lot. And they were typically part of the leadership group as well. So there was a really good balance of youth and experience because at some point those experienced guys are going to retire and you need to be grooming your younger guys to be that veteran leader down the track. And so that's how we would make up these leadership groups. And typically that's how most Mm -hmm. teams in Australia do that. After this sort of early season or preseason, these meetings and, and you're fleshing all this stuff out, you know, one of the hardest things is everybody feels really good preseason. You have these discussions. Everybody agrees on some qualities of the team. And then you hit a two or three game skid early in the season and things get off balance. So then how does it go from what you guys talking about in the preseason to maintaining that and build and, and not even just maintaining, but building on that throughout the ups and downs of a season? Well, good question. The players themselves review after every game. So it's not every, you know, typically you have these meetings when things aren't going well. It's not about that. It's um, the players meet typically the next day or the next day we get together and they'll have their 30 minute meeting on our trademark words and our behaviors. And they'll go around the room and they'll They'll have to talk on how they felt they individually behaved collectively. How did we behave? And they kind of police themselves, if you want to call it that. We did this stuff really well. We need to be better in this area. I need to be better in this area. I thought I did a good job of this. So it's a post-game review every game. Yeah, this stuff takes time. But I don't just think the culture stuff is hugely important, that they do a good job of this and they police it on a – even if we win, it could be behaviors during that winning performance that weren't to the level that we expect individually or collectively. And we just never want things to kind of fester to a point where they become a major problem. What are things on the other side of the coin that coaches do that maybe they don't think about that sort of damage their own culture they're trying to build with the players? I mean, I just feel like a lot of coaches are typically just dictated to. That's what I don't like. I don't like that. I think it needs to be guidance and not just being told like a robot that you need to act like this. I want guys to express themselves, but within our behaviours, I don't want you to be a robot as a complete team. You know, I want you to have some freedom and express yourself and feel comfortable regardless if you're a veteran guy that's really quiet to a veteran guy that's really outspoken to a young guy that's really quiet to a young guy that's really outspoken. You've got to have the comfort level to, after we've established these behaviours within our team, that they have the comfort level to talk to an older guy or a younger guy 
in an appropriate tone, you know, like that's really important. You know, I want a second-year pro to be able to talk to a 10-year pro and say, hey, we, we talked about these behaviours and this is how we want to be seen and act and perform and you're not doing that. And, you know, I need you to pull back in line. Like I want those guys to have that comfort level. I'm not sure that that happens as much when it's just totally dictated to you and you hear one voice all the time. I want the group to better communicate to each other and not just be whipped into line by the coach is probably the way I look at it. I mean, the one other thing for me that I find is the most powerful tool on behavior change is an exercise that we do called Start, Stop, Keep. And I'll just talk about my, myself, for example. So the way that this exercise works is I, as the coach, would walk out of the room with this sheet of paper that has behaviors that I need to start doing, stop doing, and keep doing. The group is broken out into three groups, and they're sitting there talking about Coach Fern on behaviors that he needs to start, stop, and keep doing. I come back into the room. I sit in front of the entire group, and they, one by one, each group go up to the whiteboard and write up the behaviors of start, stop, keep. And then I go up to the board and write behaviors that I feel like I need to start, stop, keep. That becomes a very interesting exercise because you don't actually realize at times some of the behaviors that you are demonstrating especially when you're coaching a team that gets pretty intense and it's, there's a lot of pressure and so on and so forth. I felt like that's probably the largest amount of growth that I've gained is when you go through that exercise and every single player does it. Um, there will be behaviours that players demonstrate that are just corrosive to your team, body language, the way they talk to teammates. Those are behaviours that have to stop. Um, there'll be some guys that are very quiet and show very little behavior whatsoever you, you've got to start showing some of this and um, those are part of the discussions that they talk about in their post-game meetings as well there'll be behaviors that they need to start doing that and stop doing and keep doing and yeah I've found tremendous growth not only in myself but in players I've seen massive behavior change on players I mean it's it's pretty intense when the whole group's telling you hey you need to stop acting like this because it's corrosive to our environment and it does not help us perform. And it actually takes you out of a role that we need you to, to provide for this group. I think it takes a lot of time. And I know this culture stuff takes a lot of time. I did a discussion on this to a couple of hundred coaches uh, during the summer and they're like, man, how much time does this take? I'm like, yeah, it takes a lot of time. I mean, does it take a lot of time for you to establish your offensive system and your defensive system and constantly working on it? Sure does. Well, the culture thing's the same thing. Well, when you discuss these things every few weeks, it's like, no, we talk about it every game and it takes time. And probably the final thing we talk about is just role definition. We come up with a sheet that has each player's role and what we would like them to provide for the group. The player has input into what they feel that they want to do. Some guys are obviously left field. I'm on the right field. We're going to meet in center field somewhere. And we get, in a way, a bit of a contractual agreement on what their role is going to be. And then we review that role every few weeks on how they are performing. Maybe their role improves. Maybe their role becomes less. I never want the player to walk into my office at the end of the year and go, oh, coach, I never knew what my role was. Yeah. yeah I, hear, I hear that all the time. You know, I want that established early on and consistently talked about. And this is how you're going to achieve that role. This is the work you're going to have to put in from skill development to video to, you know, behavior change. There's all those things we've talked about. So, yeah, there's many layers, right? Yeah. We can uh, start to transition now into, I know, something else you've spoke on quite a bit. And, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't have at least some sort of conversation with you about tagging up and that whole system and the ins and outs of it. So I think the probably best way to start just for those listening that aren't familiar with the tagging up system is for you to, I guess, give us a, a little breakdown or rundown of the system, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it after. I guess I came up with this concept with one of my assistant coaches, McDowner, a number of years ago. There were a couple of teams in the NBL that were extremely physical on the offensive glass. They created extra possessions. They 
established a really high level of physicality as much as every other team in the league complained about their physicality and being over-physical and so on and so forth. That didn't seem to change anything. So I was like, well, we've got to come up with a system that can match that physicality if we want to be one of the better teams in the league. So I think a great way of doing that is to try and insert your dominance on the offensive glass. We were always a pretty good defensive team, but I wanted to be able to cap that off with another layer of physicality with how we attack the offensive glass. That kind of was the start of our transition defense, to say. So long story short, we send everybody to the offensive glass on every shot. They've got rules they have to be super disciplined with. And I know tagging up has a bit of this concept that it's about rebounding. It's actually not that. Priority number one for me is transition defense. The offensive rebounds are very close second, don't get me wrong. So, you know, when shots go up, we're attacking the offensive glass with rules and we will opportunistically just come up with offensive rebounds. Our offensive rebounding percentage went up. Our defensive transition points against went down when we started doing this. Our physicality definitely went up. Our defensive lockout mindset improved because every day at practice, our guys are having to deal with guys attacking the offensive glass on every drill that we do. Every drill would finish with that concept. And we had really good success with it and something that I really believe in. It's different. It's almost counter to what the typical defensive transition is, which I've been taught as well. A number of coaches that do do it now, their feedback to me is that they find that the players find it very simplistic and easy to do and it's easy to coach. It takes a lot of gray area decision-making away from, well, I thought I had this guy and I thought I had that guy because your defensive transition assignment is the guy that you tagged up on or the girl that you tagged up on. And our women's program here at Charlotte do tagging up, and that's been the feedback back to me. has been, mm-hmm. man, I've been coaching this for years, and the way that I've been doing transition defense and this system is just so simple. It's just black and white. And there's actually a girls' high school team here in Charlotte that I actually did the video with. And Coach Nelson's been a coach for over 30 years in high school and college basketball. And her feedback's the same. It's just, man, this is just so easy. And the girls love doing it. It really does bring some physicality. And you you find out real quick who you guys and girls are that want to be physical and who don't. You know, the Davidson Women's Program does it here just up the road. He's done a very good presentation on it before, how their numbers improved dramatically. You know, some NBA teams have started to reach out and ask questions about it. Okay. That's tagging up in a bit of a nutshell, I guess. Coach, I guess my my first question is, you kept mentioning physicality. So it it goes up in terms that just players are getting more comfortable, like just running and putting bodies on people. Are you saying, is it translating to other aspects of the game as well, the physicality? Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, I... I say this in Australia, like a lot of boys in Australia grow up playing Australian rules football, right? And it's a hit, get hit sport. A little bit like football here is in the US. I feel like if players here in the US that play American football and then choose to play basketball are not too concerned about physicality. No. Typically compared to those that just grow up playing basketball and then come up across a guy that's played football and is quite prepared to hit you and is not concerned if you hit him, I think there's a big difference. And that happens in Australian rules football with a lot of kids. A lot of Australian rules football and basketball players play the same sport, and at some point they just Mm -hmm. choose where they want to go, and they're not concerned about the physicality. So to answer your question, when the concept of tagging up is introduced, and yes, there's some physicality because you've got to tag up with your block out, and make them block you out, and there's obviously going to be some physicality in that contest, yeah, that's going to branch over into other, other aspects of the game. Checking cutters, just making hard cuts and getting hit, driving to the basket and getting hit, and being comfortable with getting hit and hitting people and it not become a problem for you mentally, which a lot of them you know, just struggle with. Embrace it. I say, bring it on. Let's go. I want to hit you. I want you to hit me, and let's battle. 
And that's been a fairly consistent feedback as well, is that a lot of coaches find that their players become a lot more physical and are comfortable with the physicality. As much as we try and make basketball not a physical game, let's be real, it is. And when players are comfortable in that environment, then they can obviously think about doing other things. Coach, just so we can try to paint a little bit of a picture for those listening to what we're talking about right now, can we briefly go over the some of the rules of tagging up so shot goes up from the perimeter what's everybody doing what are their angles where are they supposed to go what's the system so everybody gets on the front foot meaning they're walking forward running forward they will typically have somebody defending them and so they need to tag up on the high side so let's say a shot was taken on the left 45 and I'm on the right 45 I can't run under them and I've got to tag up over the high side of them, meaning come over the top side of that block out and try and, which I call scrumming, which is a bit of a rugby union term that we're going to scrum everybody into the lane. And yeah, I'm trying to create a mass of players within the keyway. And then it becomes just a battle for the loose ball in a, in a way. You cannot run past a non-block out. You can't run past somebody that's trying to block you out. You cannot run under them. So you've got to tag up on the high side because, I mean, the first point I made, right, the most important thing is transition defense. So I feel if you run past a non-block out, if you run past a block out, if you run underneath them and you get on the inside of them, if the ball bounces over your head and you're automatically out of position, you've created pace and transition to me. And I want you to tag up on the high side and the ball bounces off the rim and conveniently bounces in your direction on the high side where you're coming up with that offensive rebound. If it doesn't and it bounces to the low side of you and it goes to the the defensive player, well, you're in transition defensive position and then we'll get back and we'll flood and we'll slow the pace of the possession down. So, and it takes a lot of discipline. It does take a lot of discipline. It's not reckless just flying in there that's definitely not what it is I get asked questions all the time well, what if I have a great instinctual offensive rebounder I said I don't care the rule is the rule if that player is that good of an offensive rebound well if they can scrum that defender into the lane or below the level of the backboard they're going to come up with that offensive rebound you know I, I had a player like that for example like Tory Craig played for me for a couple of years in Australia you know, he's been with Denver and is now with Milwaukee now. And Tory's a very aggressive, you know, very good athlete, tough, gets after the rebound type of guy. And Tory had to learn to not be as reckless and just go by the rule. And his pursuit of the ball and his length and his athleticism and his physicality, he was still one of the better rebounders in the NBL you know, as a 6-6 perimeter guard. So... The discipline's the key. And you break that discipline and you're giving up easy buckets. And the way I stat it is, is what points do you give up and transition off missed or made baskets? Points off turnovers is a different category for me. And that's how we would give feedback to the players about it. So the kind of the next situation, you've tagged up successfully. Everyone's on the high side. It's a missed shot. They get the rebound. And you, I think you mentioned with flooding, but what is then the next kind of stage to in those like, let's say one to two seconds, so the other team still doesn't create pace that you're kind of emphasizing. Yeah, like obviously you've got to have great ball pickup and that next defender in line's got to get to that plugger, which we call the plugger spot, try and plug up that perceived hole through the middle of the floor that they think they can attack. The defender on the ball understands that they will have a plugger help there. So you're in essence, you're kind of shading the thing more to the middle than to the outside. If the ball is on the right side of the floor, there's no direct pass, kick ahead pass up the floor that has to be denied and taken away. And then the two other defenders are like a deep safety and a middle of the floor. Like if the ball was coming down the right side of the floor, then I would expect all five defenders to be on that right side third or middle third of the floor. That basically is that flooding concept that I'm talking about, that there's just this mass of defenders that just take away any type of hard dribble penetration, you know, you'll, you'll come up against teams that have obviously dynamic point guards that are really quick. And we at times would go 
automatically go trap that that really quick ball handling point guard and get the ball out of their hands and make someone else bring it up the floor. And yeah, look, you've got to have obviously amazing intent to get back and get into those positions and slow down the pace of the transition. I mean, in a way, if you can picture it, I mean, I'm a pack coach, right? And basically, I'm just extending the pack defense full length of the floor, and then we're just compressing it straight down into the path court. That's how I kind of mm. explain it to our guys is that right side third, middle third, we're packing it in, we're flooding, and then we're just compressing down into the pack defense in the half court. One of the things that interests me every time I think about this or you know, in talking to you now is the variations that could or could not or should not be run within the tagging up system. So kind of going back to what you said earlier where with Tory Craig, where you know, you told him, no, this is the system. This is what we're doing, even though he was a tremendous offensive rebounder. Right. Have you talked to coaches or do you see a situation where some sort of middle ground is also possible within tagging up? And I guess the reason for my question is, you know, you've got a couple of guys that aren't great offensive rebounders and you've got some guys that really are. Is there something in the middle where certain guys are tagging up and certain guys are not? And that is also effective. No, I, I don't. I don't teach it that way. I'm all in. I'm all five guys every time. A player that used to really frustrate me, and you'll probably laugh about this if you ever listen to the podcast, is Cam Glidden, who, who I coached for a number of years. He played for Australia at the World Cup last year. Was like a lot of discipline on getting on the front foot. He always was backpedaling. Probably just years of habits of being a combo guard, being told to get back and protect the rim. So it took us a long time to... A lot of video work to show, hey, look, shot goes up. These four guys are tagging up. What are you doing? You're backpedaling. Look at the ball bounces off the rim and goes straight to your man. And now he's coming at you with pace because he's got no one guarding him. So that took a lot of discipline and a lot of video work and a lot of basically calling them out in front of the team, game after game, practice after practice. You're not tagging up. You need to be better in this area. So I was 100% in. Some coaches do ask me that. One of my assistant coaches that coached in, in the Asian League uh, in Kuala Lumpur, he experimented with tagging up only on three-point shots. So every time there was a three-point shot, they tagged up. Anytime there was a shot taken mid-range or layup, they would get back. You know, they would basically get back and try and build a wall. He found that, that to be you know, productive as well. And look, at the end of the day, you do what you want as a coach. You know, like this is how I do it. And I believe in it, but we all can obviously find ways to tweak things and make things better or, or whatever, how we feel it fits our group. But to kind of answer your question, I wanted those players that are not that good of offensive rebounders because typically they didn't want the physicality is the way I looked at it. No, I need you to be more physical. We're, we're going to go out and battle. We're going to go to war and you're going to know every time we put a shot up, we're coming and you're going to have to be locked into blocking us out. No one blocks out these days. I mean, as coaches tell our guys to block out all the time, you go back and watch a video and they just stand there and they watch the thing go over their head. Well, they got no concentration. So that's how we try to combat that. You'll be stunned at how many offensive rebounds you get by just simply standing next to your man and not really even providing any physical contact and the ball just bounces off the rim and comes straight into your hands. That would happen two or three times a game for guys. So. I'm sending everybody. And at some point during the game, and it typically happened almost every game, we'd have a, a phase of play where we'd have three, four offensive rebounds in a row because it would just shot goes up, here we come. Shot goes back up again, boom, here we come again. That becomes deflating for the defensive group. I know coaches sat there during the week, hey, you guys have got to block out. You know, every time a shot goes up, they're coming, you've got to block out. So their focus changed a little bit of, man, I've got to really block out every time and I'm not going to leak out and try and get transition buckets. And obviously if, you know, the other questions are if guys leak out or fly by contest, well, you have to go with a leak out and a fly by and then it might only turn into a four on four tag up situation or a three on three tag up situation. So yeah, look, there's an obviously a number of rules, but I feel like over time of kind of experienced almost everything I feel like someone could throw at us. You know, do you get scored on at times? Yeah, of course you do. Just like you do if you sent everybody back compared to you send two back um, or three back. But it just takes a lot of discipline and execution in those systems as well, just as it does with this one. Coach, 
a term we liked that we had Liam Flynn on back in January and he was talking about they like to play high in the gaps defensively and the tax that they would have to pay on that defense is maybe they give up a backdoor layup once or twice a game, but they're willing to pay that tax defensively because of the benefits they get from playing high in the gaps. I guess with tagging up, what is the tax that coaches would need to be willing to pay on this, whether it's a transition bucket here or there or missed assignment? What is something that they need to think about before putting this in? Yeah, they've got to coach the discipline at an extremely high level and really abide by the rules. Generally, the players break the rules, and the biggest one is that they just run past a non-block out or don't find someone to tag up on. You'll have players that just have no thought process of blocking out whatsoever, and you basically have to run into them and make them block you out. That's the way I kind of try and make our guys do that. Those rules are broken, then you, you're, you're susceptible to fast break baskets for sure because you're just getting yourself out of position, which you're going to probably have to pay the price for that early on until you can really educate your guys on that by going under, you know, going on the low side, running past a non-block out, players not positioning themselves into flooding behind the ball, slow the pace down. If, for example, it's a bigger guy guarding a quicker ball handling, well, as a team, we have to defend that. I mean, if you've got yourself into the half court, for an example, and you've been switching and the shot clock gets low and then all of a sudden your five man's guarding the, the point guard who's going to look to boogie on you and try and make a play, well, I don't think the other four defenders are going to just fan out and worry about their guy and leave the big guy on the island. I think you're flooding behind, you're packing behind and trying to force some type of contested shot compared to a blow-by layup. To me, yeah, you're under a little bit, you're, you know, you're under more pressure with the ball being full court in that same situation. But, I mean, really, I mean, if a point guard's defending a point guard and he's got a really sharp handle and you're trying to pick him up full court, most of those point guards are going to blow past your point guard. You know, they're going to have the quickness and, yeah. you know, they're going to make that play. They need their teammates to kind of be a deterrent to go, well, mm, I'm standing right here. I'm not sure you can really blow past my guy because I'm going to be here to help him. So I guess that's, you know, that concept of flooding. But I think, like I said earlier, I think statistically you've got to take those numbers. How many points are you giving up in transition off a made or missed basket? Yeah. Take out the turnovers, take out the points off turnovers. That's a different category. That's your points off to turnovers category. But I think proof back to your players is a powerful tool to say, hey, look, you know, we're tagging up. We gave up. I don't know, 12 points in transition this game, and this game was only eight. This game was 25. Well, obviously, we did a really bad job, and right. we've got to be better, and this is why we were bad. Look, is it a perfect concept? No, I don't think any concept is, but there are a lot of benefits to it. Yeah. And statistically for us, I can only go by the stats that we took for like a six-year period is that our points against in transition went down compared to what we were doing, and our second chance opportunities went up. And I think that's a winning formula. Going back a little bit to teaching it and your views of physicality and how it plays into it. How do you view offensive fouling in all of this? Because I'd imagine the physicalness in which your teams play tagging up could potentially lead to guys trying to go over the back for offensive rebounds if they're always on that high side of them. And then on the flip side too, if one of your best players, say, gets a second foul earlier in the game, do you still want him to go tag up every time? Or And if and if so, I guess, what's the conversation about, hey, don't go over the back to get your third foul? Yeah, good question for sure. And I get asked that quite a lot is, again, it comes back to the discipline. So fouling those situations was a massive, massive negative. Have the discipline not to jump over the back if the ball just unfortunately hasn't quite bounced in the right direction. You can't just at the expense of trying to get this one offensive rebound, jump over his back and commit a silly foul. Dumb. Dumb play. Two, if you were out of position or the ball didn't quite bounce in the direction that you wanted to and the defensive player got it, then don't hack in there and foul. Dumb. They were top probably the two biggest ones that you just couldn't commit those type of fouls. Because, yeah, they're costly, and that's a 94 feet away from what you're trying to defend, you know, for that one possession, you're going to come up with it. Don't put yourself in a compromised position that you kill the play by a silly foul like that. So a lot of 
teaching and coaching went into that to not commit those type of fouls. A lot of feedback that I had from NBL referees that they, they actually found us very difficult to officiate because every single time that we're putting a shot up, we're coming from yeah. every direction. You know, like we've got five guys like flying in there and they're like, uh, what are we looking at? And then probably the third made point was, you know, just not pushing and putting two hands in the back of the block out. I really taught them getting their hands up, trying to scrum that defender with your lower body and, you know, you got to have a bit of gamesmanship and a bit of salesmanship on that to not make it evident that you're just in there and then just jacking them in the back. You know, those were probably the three main real disciplined things that they had to do a good job of when they were tagging up. How do you build the discipline and practice? I know you mentioned some film. I know you'd like to tag up on every drill. What are you doing to build this discipline to get your guys, you know, humming at this thing? I mean, we incorporate it into every drill. So if we're playing two on two, I don't know, two on two closeout live, yeah. we're finished with a tag up. We're playing three on three, four on four shell drill, four on four to get back, five on out. I'm a big 5-1-0 coach. We're going up and down 5-1-0. Every time there's a shot, they had to get on the front foot, get inside the three-point line, and then they're transitioning back into the next offensive play we're running. Or are there specific drills that you can do to teach tagging up? Yeah, we would kind of break it down two-on-two, three-on-three, if a shot's taken from here, if a shot's taken from there, if, if a player drives and lays it up, and I call it spilling over the baseline, quickly getting back in and tagging up and to teach it, I would do that. But as coaches, I'm not inventing new drills to tagging up. Just do what you're doing. And if you're interested in doing it, well, then you just incorporate it into the drills that you're doing on these concepts and these rules. And, you know, Coach Nelson that I talked about earlier at Myers Park here in, in Charlotte with her girls program, you know, she's been coached for over 30 years. I mean, she just, she was actually saying to me the other day, she just feels like I'm like a new coach, like I'm, I've got a new lease of life on, on coaching. I'm really enjoying the concept. I incorporate it into my drills. I don't have to spend so much time teaching them how to defensive transition because if a shot's taken here, you need to be doing this and I want three crashing the glass like this and this play getting back to protect the rim and so on and so forth. You know, it's giving us some life and something different to do and is really enjoying the concept. So, yeah, I just think you just incorporate in your drill. That's what I did. I just incorporated all the drills we did and just it was just another layer to what we were doing. We could keep going, but I want to go now to our start, sub, or sit, which is different than what we were talking about earlier for you, the what start, uh, keep. start, stop, keep, which I kind of like. I like that a lot too. Well, <laughs> Coach, just a um, fun one for you to start, okay? So okay. quickly, just to reiterate for those listening, we're going to give you three different topics. You're going to pick one that you would start which one you sub in, a little playing time, which one is going to sit. So first one, you've got a free afternoon to not watch basketball. Start, sub, or sit. Are you watching cricket, rugby, or Australian rules football? I'm watching cricket. I played cricket as a junior. I was a representative cricket player. Oof. I mean, I actually do like all three of them, so it's a, it's a, it's a tough one for <laughs> okay. me. Um, I mean, I grew up in New Zealand, obviously a, a massive rugby union playing nation, right? But I am Australian, so I kind of had to support the Australian team in a New Zealand Kiwi household, so I was That's a tough. little bit, um, yeah, yeah I was, that was a tough one. So <laughs> I'll put rugby union as the sub. And I'll put Australian rules football as the sit, but man, that's a tough one because <laughs> there's beauty in the game in all those games, you know, just the the skill required and the discipline and especially in rugby union and just the skill in Australian rules football is phenomenal. The athletes and their skill levels to kick to each other and pass to each other at speed and the athleticism is phenomenal. But I do like playing cricket and I do like watching cricket. I guess cricket's a little bit like the American baseball pastime. You just kind of sit there the whole day. And I know Americans make fun about cricket because you can watch a test match, for example, which goes for five days and you can get to the end of the five days and not have a winner. You know, you can just have a draw. So that frustrates a lot of Americans in that way. It'd be like playing baseball for five hours and not have a result, which would really frustrate a lot of, a lot of people. But 
Quick follow-up. If I'm like a top athlete, what sport am I going to fall towards in Australia? Look, I think if you live in Melbourne and Victoria, you're probably leaning towards Australian rules football. That's kind of the, the capital of Australian rules football is Melbourne. I think if you grow up in Sydney, you're probably leaning towards rugby union or rugby league. Perth on the West Coast is probably a bit of Australian rules football as well. Queensland, Brisbane, you know where Brisbane is, probably more rugby union, rugby league. Like they're massive sports in our country. Basketball is not a, it is a big sport, but those sports are massive. And so I think it's a little bit to where you grow up is kind of a sport that you'll generally lean to because obviously a lot of your friends will be doing those similar things. And I think that's how it kind of works. But it's funny just in different parts of the world, right? Yeah. How other sports are so big. And basketball in Australia is big. Like the last five, six years, you know, what Larry Kesselman's done to the NBL and the profile he's generated, the NBA players that we have coming over, players that are coming back to here to be in the NBA is phenomenal and generating a lot of a lot of interest for sure. About eight years ago, I found myself on a, a tour bus with about five or six Australian rules football player guys in, uh, in Ireland. All right. And, um, had a couple pints with them later that night. And to say it was an unforgettable night would be quite an understatement. <laughs> you got taught a lesson, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. That's right. Okay, coach. Uh, getting back to some, some basketball here. Start, sub, or sit. It's a side pick and roll and the defense is icing it or downing it. So start, sub, or sit in terms of attacking this ice coverage. You can flip the screen have the screener release and kind of throw it. The guard throws it to him and tries to get the handoff to go over the middle or just let's attack it. Kind of the guard attacks that baseline and you got the screener rolling hard or rolling to the open space. I'm a big, th- I call it throw and go. So I would separate from the icing, the guard, I'll get the guard to separate down for the example you're explaining and throw it back to the big, and that big can either turn around and counter and go the other way or dribble handoff straight back to the guard. I find that you can stay within your system and what you're running with that. And it's easy to move the ball. I was big on that in Australia with my teams doing that. We just call that throw and go. My sub subbing option would be I'd look to flip it. I'd just look to flip the big and screen on a different angle and get the guard to try and attack. Across the street stuff, you know, just like what you're saying would be my sit would be the attack side of it. I mean, I feel like when you get into that, the guard's got to really make a play. Yeah. I think there's a lot of teaching in that with the bigs to be able to circle under the other way and so on and so forth. I think if you want to keep the ball moving and continuity and getting the ball to go from one side to the other side, because, I mean, why do teams ice it? Well, they want to try and pin you to one side mm-hmm. of the floor. Well, I don't want you to do that to me. I want to be able to keep running my stuff. So. The throw and go stuff is yeah hugely important for me with that. If it is say it's a late clock and they're icing and you just gotta go, what are you gonna try to then emphasize with your guard and your big to work together? Because I think what you're thinking and what I kind of why I don't like it too is you just see the guard just like kamikaze it into the big and he has no roll support. It's just an easy switch and it's a tough shot. I guess what would be kind of your emphasis then if if you gotta run it if you gotta do it to make it more successful? Probably crossing the street, you know, trying to get that guard to cross the street, force the switch, get the big on the rim. You know, obviously the NBA guards are so good at just crossing the street, getting to that mid-range area and pulling up and banging shots. Or if you force that switch, then just throwing it up to the big guy because he has a mismatch. I think that's probably the way that I would probably look to teach that um, in that real situation where you've got to go really get a bucket yeah. or get that penetration, you know, cross the street, get that switch, get some penetration, try and force rotation, then find shooters on the weak side of the floor. Coach, start, sub, or sit. These are special play packages to spend time on as a staff. Mm-hmm. So sideline out of bounds, baseline out of bounds, or full court out of bounds, like press releases or press breaks? Uh, No question. Sideline out of bounds is my start. I think the rehearsal of that is extremely important in practice. I remember having a great conversation with Brett Brown years ago in Australia. He was coaching Australia and me and my assistants went and met with him. He was so generous with his time with that. 
and he talked to us about the time that the Spurs at the time spend just rehearsing sideline out of bounds plays. Because he gave me this example. He's like, we're in Miami, you know, someone's just made a massive shot. Someone on the Spurs made a horrible defensive decision. The coach is pissed off. The crowd's going crazy. They're, you know, that bucket away from winning the game when you thought you had it won. So there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of noise. There's, and he's like the importance of rehearsing that stuff and putting guys in that position and the timing of cuts and screens and passes. And I remember him always saying this, who's your best inbounds passer is so important in those situations. And we went away and spent hours on that type of stuff. And we're very good with that. You know, we ended up being very good at executing that stuff and coming up with some pretty creative stuff. That's the start for me, no question. The baseline out of bounds is the sub for me. I think you get in those situations a lot in Australia and having solutions to zone end outs, man-to-man end outs. What if they're switching, you know, heavier packages for that? And then the full court stuff would be the sit for me, but don't get it wrong. That stuff's important too. Coach, the full court stuff. How much time a week will you spend? I understand you 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 know you said sit, but of course that's important too. Is it a daily thing? Is it every other day? Is it just on walkthroughs? How much time do you put into the full court press releases and all that? You know, probably two. I mean, change your question probably every day. Okay, I'm trying to tackle some aspect of that every day. Either today we're working on end outs, today we're working on full court. Today, we're working on side outs. I mean, I've been part of three games where we've ran a full court play with basically no time on the clock and we've been able to generate a basket. You know, and you could run those things 50 times and score out of it once, but that one time might be just that such of an important game. And there's multiple examples over the years of basketball teams executing that stuff. It's better to have something in place than have nothing. You want to put your team in a situation where they have a plan and try and execute that thing at a really high level. Yeah. And, you know, then varying from we've got three seconds to go full court to we've got 10 seconds to go full court, for example, and how much time they take. And I really stress the layers of those plays. Like, don't just think that the, the first option is the only option. I think you want to be able to, as a coach, give your players the second option, the third option. And, man, if you have to use the fourth one, this is where you can go because – Defenses may take that away. You'll be able to go in the next layer of your play. Yeah. So we worked on that a lot, that if that initial screen, the screener, he comes flying off there and that shot's not there, well, we're quickly going to this. And at some point, under the pressure of the moment, the defense is probably going to break down somewhere and we can generate a good shot. And I just think it's important for us as coaches to put our players in positions to take shots and it's up to the players to make them. That's how I look For at sure. It. We spend a lot of time on that. I think mean, a lot of games are won or lost on those situations. And you've got to put hours into it. And you've got to be creative. I think you've got to experiment with things. I just try and make plays up. You know, just I see a play and I say, oh, how can I tweak that one? And well, let's invent this and experiment with it at practice. And some are an absolute waste of time and some are really creative and really successful. And I think you give your team and your players a, a sense of belief when you've rehearsed them and you've practiced them and you've had success with them at practice, they know, all right, yeah, we can get this in a game. Quick follow-up on the sideline out-of-bounds. They're not all equal, right? Because sideline out-of-bounds interesting where the ball could be anywhere from the hash on your side of the floor all the way to you know the hash or below on the on away from your basket. And they're all kind of sideline out-of-bounds. Sure. At what point going down the floor do you have different set packages where closer we're going to score or we're going to run a, a, an actual set to where maybe it gets closer to half court or back and now we're not going to try to score we're just going to try to get it in and run a set or how do you view it as the ball moves up and down the sideline yeah i have different plays for different sections of the floor like okay. from halfway to the coach's mark the deep corner we have different little plays for each thing i mean there are teams in australia at the start of second half when you're inbounding the ball at halftime they'll try and trap the first pass and be disruptive and I run a play and 
we'll go score on it. So you want to attack me, I'm going to attack you with a plan. So just preparation. You may not use them for the other seven teams in your league, but that one team does that to you. So like, all right, I remember that from last time. I'm ready for you this time. To where you get deep in the corner and you need to have a couple of options with that. We actually had a game here recently where I think we inbounded the ball in the deep corner like four times in one game. Like that might happen once in a season, you know, like it just, it was a real strange game. And then we have to come out of that game and go, man, we probably need a couple of different options for the deep corner, not just the one that we have. So, yeah, I think it's important to have, you know, plays that take a little bit of time to develop to something that's like a quick hit, one quick pass, one screen, bang, we've got to get a shot off. So, yeah, you know, just part of your coaching development over years when you get put in those situations where you get found out that you're not quite as prepared as you think you are and you need to add that to your list. On that deep corner inbounds, what are maybe some of the things you learned or some good actions to try to run out of there? I mean, as far as like, I imagine you don't want to really be running a zipper where the guy's running away and you're in the deep corner. Or what would you stress to coaches to think about when they're in that deep corner that could be a good way to attack it? Yeah, I always find kind of some type of like lineup action that has guys curling to the rim and then guys popping out and inbounders quickly coming back in bounds or guys curling off that line stack up and curling back through the line, like a close the gate yeah. type situation. I always want my plays to have a little misdirection, you know, like there's players putting pressure on the rim that forces defenses to help and you feel like the play is going that way and it's actually coming back this way. If you have a little bit of time, you obviously can inbound it and have some action leading away to the other side and you're actually coming back to the same side it was on. I mean, that's what I've done in the past, just putting players in different positions and obviously the NBA tries to lob a lot of guys to the rim and put pressure on the rim to force help. It opens up other players. I always think that that type of focus is beneficial to you trying to get to the next layer of your of yeah. those plays. I'd say that that stuff's really important. All right, coach. Um, start, sub, or sit. You're going to play through your big. Okay. Will you play through your big from the top of the key, from the elbow, or from the post? And now your big will have the skill sets required from obviously each of those positions. Ooh, so elbow, post, and what was the other one? Like the top of the key, kind of like an open offense. You're going to kick it to them and try to run some action. All right. Well, I'll start with the the least one would be my sit would be the key, uh, would be the top of the lane. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess you're saying like top of the three-point line. You'd go to, yeah, probably not. I'm going power game for my start and and trying to work a lot of those post feeds from the top down. I think that stuff's really hard to trap. If you are a trapping team, obviously it's a bit of a two-man game. If you can feed from the high post and enter the ball to your low man and low block and really get him to work down there. Probably my sub is working from the elbow. I think you need a, you know, a pretty good skill set to probably trying to really operate from the elbow. Like a lot of NBA teams, they just isolate a guy on the elbow and let him go to work from basically posting up from the elbow which is really hard to trap and double and so on and so forth. I guess if you really want to establish a real power dominance, then your start's probably just low block, just power game. I'm just going to go to work on you and make you have to double team. And then, like you said, if they have the skill set to do it, well, they have the skill set to go get a bucket because they're just that good. And then they have yeah. the skill set to pass out of the double team because they're that good. they got the heads up about to make those plays. But I think if you can really establish a low block presence and force teams to have to double, then I think you're creating a huge advantage. Following up with that coach, especially now that you're at the college level with these young big men, is there something that you're seeing that's kind of just being undertaught or not necessarily taught that you think can really help these kids? Yeah. And I probably don't do a good enough job of this myself, actually. And I, and I got taught this very well. I played at a little university, Mayville State University in Mayville, North Dakota, and my coach at the time was Tim Miles, who coached at Nebraska recently and was on TV now. And he, I remember him way back then teaching us, teach your big guys to score before they've caught the ball, right? So just your positioning on ceiling and ducking in front and, you know, if they want a front, being able to ride them up the lane and look for the lob. 
where your bigs can basically just catch and finish. I guess we get a little bit ahead of ourselves and go, oh, let's throw the ball into the post and let him back down and up and unders and counters and, and running hooks and have you know a really big skill set with that. That takes a lot of time, especially for the younger guys. Doing a better job as coaches of teaching your bigs how to score just off positioning and sealing and the ball is on the wing and you're in the opposite post and it comes to the top and then you duck in front of your big guy and pin him on the front of the rim where you can just catch and just go straight into a jump hook or a score. Yeah. Very little work that goes into being able to finish that playoff or get to the free throw line. So I think we're going to do a better job of that, you know, teaching bigs to do that at a really high level, teaching them to score before they catch the ball instead of catching it and then going, okay, how am I going to score? Coach, that was awesome. Thank you. You're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. Um, we appreciate you you playing through that. We've got one closing question for you. And thank you again for your time. We're going to have to have you back for a part two or part three because this could keep going. But to close, I'd like to kind of go back to the beginning of our conversation when you're talking about culture and talking about building teams that can sustain you know, excellence going throughout a season or throughout a career. I want to look at it now from the coaching side of things. And you've been around a lot of great coaches. You are one yourself that have gone through areas of failure where they're losing games or things aren't working out well and how those great coaches handle failure. Yeah, look, I think it really comes back to that culture that you've tried to establish at the start of the year, your trademark words, your behaviors. You've got to believe in them 100%. And a perfect example of me was the last year I coached in Cairns. We had a phenomenal team, and I think we finished the season 11 and 17. We finished sixth, I think, in the regular season. The top four make the playoffs. But the guys were just true professionals all the way through, and we dealt with some tough times for sure. But they were extremely professional. They held each other accountable to the culture, to the behaviors that we established. And I guess at the end of the day, we just weren't talented enough with the other teams, you know, and I think your team's as good as it can be with what you got. And I think that's your goal is for them to be as good as they can be with what you got. And the results are, you want to win. I get that. But you also want to have a phenomenal experience. And as coaches and, you know, lasting memory for me from that season will be the way that the guys were that professional during that tough time. You know, players struggled, coaches struggled, but the professionalism and togetherness and what we were trying to accomplish, we just worked at at every day to try and be as good as we could be. And at the end of the year, if it's not good enough, we have to go back and reevaluate on better talent or better system, better skill development. You got to believe in what you believe in. You can't be listening to a thousand different voices. You've got to have a really small circle of people that you really trust in and they believe in you and they give you honest feedback, especially as a coach for me, for example. I only have a few coaches that I would really have honest communications with and really listen to their feedback. That puts you in your spot because, look, you obviously have some phenomenal times and you have some really tough times and that's coaching and playing. And you've got to try and find a balance. You know what they always say, don't get too excited and don't get too down because you're not that far away from, you know, turning the corner either way. I mean, you can have success for a little bit of time and it can go sideways really quickly or it can go the other way around. So finding a balance with that is really difficult and really challenging and there is pressure. But as I say, I think you've got to embrace the pressure. This is what you signed up to be. This is what you signed up to do embrace it. There's a lot of people that never get to experience any of this type of pressure. I think it's what you live for. And um, it excites me. It is really difficult at times, difficult on your family. And I think it's really important to have people that have been through it. So have an older mentor that's been there, done that. A lot of things that I've had Coach Malloy back in Australia say to me, he's been through it a hundred times. Aaron, it's not that bad and you're not that good. So, you know, like, don't get ahead of yourself and don't get too down. 
you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet to this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.